0: Well, howdy, welcome to another edition of Railfan Roberts Reading Railroad Chapter 15: Outwitting a Suspect. Although bound and gagged, the Hardys exchanged messages. Frank's glance slid to their guard, tilted back in his chair against the wall. Then he looked at his brother. Joe nodded silently to show he understood and looked toward the lantern. The glass was turning black with soot and the room was in deep shadow. Lucky lucky it's dark in here, he thought, because we'll have to get these ropes off without being seen. Frank's eyes fastened on the long nails he had seen sticking through the wall near the chair legs. If only he could get his back to those sharp points. Cautiously, he inched toward the wall. Duke, who appeared to be asleep, did not stir. Joe also moved. Bit by bit, the brothers worked their way closer to the protruding nails. At last, Frank sat with his back against the wall, not far from the guard's chair. Hardly daring to breathe, he felt behind him until a temporary spike pricked his wrist. If he was lucky, his scheme would work. Frank eyed his captor. The man was still asleep. Quickly, Frank rubbed the rope against the sharp point. He could feel the strands separate one at a time. His arms and back ached, but he kept on on doggedly. Finally, the rope was severed, his hands freed, he removed the gag, then pulled out his pocket knife, and cut the ropes around his ankles. Reaching over, he cut Joe's bonds. Then Frank seized a leg of Duke, Hook's tilted chair and jerked it out from under the guard. Slam! Duke fell on his back and cried out. Frank and Joe leapt on him together, but he rolled away. As he bounced to his feet, Joe brought him down with a tackle. Fighting desperately, the guard kicked, bit, scratched, and finally broke away. Gasping he backed into a corner. As Frank went after him, Duke grabbed the kerosene lantern and hurled it. The boys ducked. Crash. The glass shattered and kerosene drenched the opposite wall. A flame licked up the side of the shack. Water, Joe yelled. The bucket. He tore off his shirt and tried to beat out the flames. At the same time, Frank and Duke, who grappled for the pail, Duke jerked it away and flung it at Joe. The bucket narrowly missed him, slamming against the wall. The water splashed over onto the flames with a hissing sound. You young fools, I'll get you for this. Duke picked up the chair and raised it over his head. But Frank swung a right-hand haymaker. It caught Duke in the solar plexus, and he went down in a heap. He's out cold, Joe cried. I whipped off his shirt and finally smothered the flames. What a sock that was. Duke moaned and stirred. Swiftly, the boys poked around until they found the cut ropes. Oh. Panting, they found their prisoner's hands and feet. That should hold him, said Joe as the boys stood up. Now let's see where we are, Frank suggested. Cautiously, he opened the shack door, and the brothers slipped outside. It's the edge of Shantytown, Joe whispered after a quick look around. Across a whitish stretch of sand, they could see the dark shacks, and beyond them a red glare from beach fires. A nearly full moon sailed in and out of heavy clouds. Suddenly a figure detached itself from the shadow of the shanties and glided quickly across the sand toward them. Fist ready, Frank and Joe set themselves for a fight. fight. Put up your hands, came a firm command. You're under arrest. At that same moment, moonlight fell upon a familiar face. Pat Muster, Frank exclaimed joyfully, are we glad to see you. Pat Muster was a plainclothes man on the Bayport Police Force. The brawny, red-haired man turned his flashlight on the bruised, disheveled boys. So, you fought your way out, eh? he said, putting away his revolver. Too bad you didn't yell for help. My men and I were stacked out by the shacks keeping an eye on this place. Frank grinned ruefully. I wish we'd known that. We didn't call out because we were afraid of bringing more of the gang. Where's our father? Joe asked. He took a squad of police and followed Stark and the other fellow. The chief went back to headquarters. I see, said Frank. When you didn't close in at the store, we thought the plan had backfired. Your father suggested that we follow you, on the chance of locating the rest of the gang. Sorry I left you in the shack so long, he added. I was hoping some more of those tough birds would turn up and we'd make a bigger haul. We have one of them for you, Joe said, all trussed up and ready to go. Pat Muster chuckled. I've got to hand it to you, boys, he said. You always deliver the goods. He turned toward the shanties and gave a low whistle. Here and there, half a dozen figures appeared from the shadows and crossed to join the boys and muster the shack. Wait here, the officer ordered his men. He and the hardies entered the shanty. The detective beamed his light on the prone figure of Duke who blinked and scowled. Now that you're awake, Frank said, you'd be smart to tell us where our missing chums are. The man man glared and did not answer. Don't waste time on him, Joe advised. Let's search this place. Maybe the bank loot is hidden here. Frank and Joe borrowed flashlights from two of the men outside and began to help Detective Muster. They inspected the crude walls and flooring. Finally, they stood up disappointed. Nothing, Frank said, and there's no other place to hide anything except in the little stove. At this, Duke darted an apprehensive look at the stove. In two quick strides, Frank reached it, lifted the stove lid, and plunged his hand inside. There's something here, he exclaimed. He pulled out a limp object, a rubber mask. I think there are more, he added quickly, reaching in again. One after another, he brought out four additional false faces. Joe whistled. the bank robber's masks. What a find. This shack must have been their headquarters for a time at least. Great work, Frank. Detective Muster congratulated him. There'll probably be plenty of fingerprints on those masks. He pulled up a large folded paper sack from his pocket and opened it. Drop them in here. Here. The detective summoned two of his men to unbind the prisoner. Then they handcuffed Duke and led him to the police cars hidden in the pines on the other side of the shore road. Oh. Muster and the boys followed. When they had reached take quarters, Chief Colling sent the rubber mask to his lab for immediate fingerprint analysis. Finally, he turned to the Hardies. Letting yourselves be kidnapped was a daring stunt, boys, but you got results. He looked at Duke, who sat beside him scowling. Frank drew the chief aside and asked quietly, How about Dad and his men? Have they located Chet and Beth? The chief shook his head. They should have radioed in by now, he replied. Let's see what we can get out of the prisoner. He walked over and stood in front of Duke. If you know what's good for you, he began, but was interrupted by a clatter of feet from outside. The next moment, Ben Stark and Moran, handcuffed together, entered the chief's office, followed by Fenton Hardy and two policemen. Dad, cried Joe, did you find Chet and Biff? No, said his father quietly. Are you boys all right? You look as if you had a rough time. We're okay, Frank assured his father quickly. Tell us your story. We followed Stark and Moran from Shantytown, his father explained. They drove down to the docks and sat there, apparently waiting for a boat. When it didn't show up, they headed back to Shantytown. So did we. As soon as I saw that Pat was missing from his station, I knew your. You boys and your guard have been brought back here. We arrested these two in the shack. Do Stark and Moran know where Biff and Chet are? Joe asked. I think they know all right, Fenton Hardy said grimly, but they're not talking. Frank and Joe looked disappointed. Cheer up, Chief Colleague advised them. You've done a terrific job. We can hold these three on a charge of kidnapping you. After we've checked the prints on the masks you found, we'll probably be able to identify them conclusively as the bank robbers. After the sullen prisoners were taken away, Frank and Joe told their father and the police what happened to them. Then the Hardys left the station and piled into the detective's car. We'll pick up our motorcycles tomorrow, Frank said. When they reached home, the three shared a late supper of cold chicken, milk, and apple pie. Then they went straight to bed. The next morning, as the boys were coming downstairs to breakfast, the telephone rang. I'll get it, said Mr. Hardy, picking up the receiver. A few minutes later, he was joining the boys in the dining room. That was Chief Colleague, the detective announced. The fingerprints of Ben Stark, Fritz Stark, Duke, and Moran, all wanted by the police, were on the masks. One set of prints is unidentified. They probably belong to the big bald fellow, said Frank, the one Mr. Kane mentioned. Kane exclaimed their father. In all the excitement, I forgot to tell you that Mr. Kane phoned yesterday, just after you left for the costume shop. He wants you to call him. At this th- news, the boys hurried to the hall, and Frank dialed the long-distance call to Northport. In a few seconds, Frank was speaking to the friendly dock manager. You remember those fellows who rented the Black Cat from me? He asked. Well, one of them left an empty envelope in his hotel room. Um, I I own the hotel, that's how I found it, so it might help you track them down. Frank Frank Stark's address is on it. That's wonderful, Mr. Kane, Frank cried out and said to Joe. He has what might be the Stark's address. Turning back to the telephone, Frank asked, Where was the letter from? Let me see, the doc manager said. It's from Worldwide Radio Distributors, Yokohama, over in Japan. Chapter 16. Skeleton Symbol Mr. Kane, said Frank in a puzzled tone. May I have the address on the letter? After jotting down the information, Frank thanked him and said goodbye. He told Joe, just a San Francisco hotel, but the sender was the distributor for radios in Yokohama. Sutton had a Yokohama radio, Joe exclaimed and we saw him talking to Ben Stark that day at Shantytown. The radio seems to be a connection between them, Frank pointed out. I think we would better go back to the hi-fi shop and find out more about the identity of Yokohama Super X purchases. After eating breakfast, the boys hurried off first to pick up their motorcycles, then go to the hi-fi shop. When they entered the store, the young clerk was glad to see them. Change your mind, fellows, he asked hopefully. Like to buy one of these sets? We would like to look at them, Frank replied. Immediately, the clerk bustled off and returned with four of the compact little radios. Go ahead, he invited. Try them. While Joe flicked the button on one set, the young man smiled. These are neat. As I told you the other day, we buy them from a distributor in Japan. In response to Frank's query about who had purchased them, the clerk gave the customers names. All familiar to the Hardys, none of them could be suspect. Three of these radios came in yesterday afternoon. Hmm. I could give you boys a good price since we bought them at a big discount. How come? Um, Frank asked. Well, we didn't buy these from the distributor, the clerk admitted. These were brought in by a fellow who wanted to sell them at a second-hand price, even though they're brand new. My boss snapped up all three. He knows a good bargain. I see, Frank nodded. No questions asked. Oh, it's not anything illegal, the clerk hastened to say. They were brought in by a respectable businessman, Mr. French, who owns the costume store down the street. Mr. French? the boys echoed in amazement. Yes, what's so strange about that? Oh, nothing, I guess, Frank replied. You just reminded us that we must see Mr. French ourselves right away. The radios will have to wait. Come on, Joe. While the mystified clerk stared after the hardy, they bolted from the shop and hurried along the side, walk toward the costume shop. Mr. French again, Joe muttered, shaking his head. Is he one of this gang? Somehow I trust him, Frank replied. Maybe the robbers are forcing him to play along with them and have threatened harm to his family unless he does. He didn't look very happy the afternoon. We picked up our costumes, Joe recalled. Those men were in his shop, were threatening him, and when he came to our house in the middle of the night, it was no mistake. He knows Dad's a detective, Frank said. I think he wanted him and was confused when we answered the door. Well, we'll soon find out, Joe said as they neared the shop. It looks closed, Frank remarked. The heavy door was shut and the blinds drawn. Going closer, the boy saw a sign in the window. Closed indefinitely. I wonder why, said Joe. Has Mr. French gone out of business? Hey, Frank cried out. Where are the gorilla and magician outfits that were in the window yesterday afternoon? Only one costume was now on display. A skeleton suit, which stood up with spread arms like a scarecrow. I hate to think what that costume means, if it's a signal, Joe said. Never mind, Frank said. We must buy Mr. French. Perhaps he lives over the store. Or oh. Frank strode to a door at one side of the building. Yes, here's his name on the bell plate. Impatiently the young detective jabbed with his thumb at the button. The bell sounded loudly, but no one answered. Hey, came a sharp voice. What are you two doing here? Frank and Joe whirled to face their two chums. Jerry Gilroy, and Tony Preto. We're sleuthing around, Joe replied and grinned. What are you fellows up to? Tony explained that he and Jerry were on an errand for Mr. Preto, then asked, Have you found out anything more about Chet and Biff? We found out plenty, Joe exploded. Chet and Biff were kidnapped by the bank robbers who mistook them for Frank and me. What? cried Tony and Jerry. While they listened intently, Frank and Joe gave the details of their adventure the night before. But where is the gang holding them? Jerry wondered. Could it be Hermit Island? Could be, Frank said. We found out the hermit we saw is a fake. The real one's dead. And when Dad trailed Stark and Moran last night, Joe put in, they went to the dock and waited for a boat. That could mean the rest of the gang and Chet and Biff are someplace only accessible by water. Then what are we waiting for, urged Jerry. Let's head for Herman Island. Yes, and no girls this time, Tony added. That phony hermit carries a shotgun, and if the robbers are there, the danger is double. Right, Frank said. We better take both boats, Tony. In case of trouble, we'll be able to split up or help each other. Tony agreed eagerly. Then we'll meet you at your dock at 1.30, Frank told him. As their two friends hurried off, Frank and Joe walked to their motorcycles and rode home. As they dismounted in front of their garage, Aunt Gertrude appeared behind the back screen door, wriggling her hands nervously. Hi, Auntie. Where are Mother and Dad? Your mother has gone shopping, and your father's off on some more detective work. There's a giant in the living room waiting for you. Oh, what? Joe asked, entering the house. Aunt Gertrude, who made a sweeping motion with her arms. A man, she said. A great big man. <laughs> Laughing, Frank led the way into the living room. This must be Alf Ludborg. The visitor's huge frame certainly dwarfed the hearty's furniture. Grinning, he shook each brother's hand in his Cushioning grip, crushing grip. I'm out of jail again. He told them. Sutton wouldn't say I attacked him, so they finally let me go. I knew you didn't do it, Alf said. Joe. The stevedore's a good na- Stevedore, good natured, natured face clouded. No, I wouldn't touch a little weasel like Sutton. He agreed but it makes me sore to be accused of doing it. What I came to tell you, though, is this. I know who did beat him up. It was one of his own pals. Ben Stark, Frank asked curiously. No, nope. a fellow they call Pops. Remember I told you about the bunch who were always fighting with one another? Well, Sutton and Pops do most of it. Pops finally gave it to him good, but Sutton wouldn't tell the police. That means they're in something illegal together, Frank reasoned. How about this Pops, Alf? Is he an old man? No, although he's bald, he's younger than Sutton. Bigger and stronger. Talks loud, too. I don't know why they call him Pops. Frank and Joe looked at each other excitedly. Both immediately thought of Ben Stark's pal, who was still at large. Could Pops be the fizzle soda drinker? Thanks for telling us, Alf, said Joe. We're glad you're out of jail. You've been in twice, and both times because of us. You couldn't help it, replied their big friend. You spoke up for me both times. I do appreciate that. After Alf had left, the brothers had some lunch, then headed for the waterfront on their motorcycles. Tony and Jerry were already in the Napoleon when the sleuth came alongside the Preto dock. With serious, determined faces, the four friends headed for Hermit Island. As soon as they reached the ocean, The boys were confronted by a fast, darkening sky and choppy sea. With incredible swiftness, black clouds with chains of lightning snapping underneath them moved in in from the south. The large raindrops began to pelt the boys. In another moment, the darkness closed around them like nightfall. Lightning flashed on the heaving ocean, and the rain smacked down on them almost painfully. "'Why didn't we bring slickers?' Nurse Joe exclaimed. Through it all, Joe kept the sluice nose pointed northward. Presently illuminated by the lightning, a rocky mass came into view. "'There's the island,' Frank called out. "'A motorboat's just pulling away, Joe.' Let's chase it, Joe cried. Some of the gang may be aboard and are escaping. Not now, Frank cautioned. Chet and Beth come first. As the boys watched, the dark brown craft disappeared in the distance. As suddenly as it had come up, the black squall passed over. The sleuth and the Napoli circled toward the island's beach. By this time, the rain had stopped. The clouds parted, blue sky appeared, and the sun beat down again. Under its burning heat, the boys' clothes began to dry out. That the storm's probably driven that phony hermit undercover, Joe said. Let's get ashore before he spots us. The boys found a small cove fringed with small scrubby oak trees, quickly concealing their boats in this cover. They debarked and set out on the path around the island. This time no one disturbed them. The trail climbed and then dropped down to the level of the shore again. Overhead loomed the wet bluff. Suddenly, Frank stopped and pointed to a dark opening in the gray rock ahead. A cave, he said quietly. The boys crept nearer. Just outside the cave's entrance, Frank lifted a warning hand. Voices, he whispered. (laughs) No part of this episode may be reproduced without my personal permission. Railfan Roberts Reading Railroad is a production of Raccoon Gaming Rail's Railroad Productions. And all, all podcast episodes are owned by Raccoon Gaming Rail's Railroad Productions.